When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, and thank you for listening to a live recording of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 185, The Pacific Theater, MacArthur's Retreat. Back with us today are the authors Bob Drury and Tom Clavin, who last time covered the events of their latest book, Lucky 666, The Impossible Mission. Now, even though we are not quite yet to the Pacific Theater, I had the chance to have these two gentlemen come back so wanted to talk to them about Douglas MacArthur and other events of the Pacific Theater. So if I may, Bob and Tom, again, thank you very much for being on the show. My pleasure, pleasure, Ray. And and I'm excited to finally get to talk about the Pacific, even though I'm not quite done with uh, the European Theater. And I have a confession to make to you two gentlemen. Uh, My obsession with World War II started in the early 70s with the Hogan's Hero television series. Mm. Sergeant Schultz. There we go. There we go. So I see nothing. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> I used to go around saying that to my parents wanted to brain me. But oh, anyway, so so that got me started. And, you know, the, the prison camp, the, uh, the threat of being sent to the Eastern Front, Russia, the whole thing. It took me a while to get to the Pacific Theater. And when I did, you know, you, of course, you come across MacArthur. And I have I have to confess this to you, he, his his confidence, his arrogance, his imperiousness. I'm not even sure what word to use. All three will do. Okay, yeah. <laughs> it turned me off uh, to him, and so I think I left him alone for a couple of years, and I didn't go back until later uh, with William Manchester's book. But just to start us off, because we're we're going to talk about MacArthur and, and the things that he went through, just give us an idea. Just just paint us a little picture of MacArthur, and what do we need to know about him going into this conversation? All right. Well, Tom, should I go first? Go right ahead. All right. Here's here's the the background of what we'll be talking about today tonight. Uh, March 217 marks the 75th anniversary of what could well be the lowest point of World War II. Mm-hmm. Now, we've had in, in December of 1941, we've had Pearl Harbor. We've had the attack on the Philippines. We've had the Dutch East Indies falling. We've had the fall of Fortress Singapore. And finally, in March of 1941... MacArthur is forced to retreat from 42. his holdout in Correct. March of 42. Uh, I'm sorry, March of 42. He mm-hmm. is forced to retreat from his last holdout in the Philippines, and that is the island of Corregidor, Manila, Manila Bay. It was the nadir for the United States in World War II. Now, there were lots more bad things to happen, but at this point, the world was upside down. The Japanese looked like they were just going to sweep across the entire Pacific. Australia was next. Uh, the West Coast of the United States very well could have been next in the eyes of our, of the uh, defenders, the allies. And at the center of this is a man so complex, complex throughout his career. I mean, he had been uh, he, uh, nominate, uh, nominated for a Medal of Honor in World War One, he'd been the Army Chief of Staff. He had uh, he had broken the bonus marchers. In fact, President Roosevelt, before the election, his first election, said he very much feared, if he was not elected, that there might be a revolution in the United States. On the left, it would come from 
uh, Huey Long, mm-hmm. and on the right, it would come from Douglas MacArthur. Wow. So let's jump ahead. 1937, after all, after being the Army Chief of Staff, MacArthur retires, and he's uh, he's named the Philippines Military Advisor. President Manuel Quezon brings him on because he had been stationed in the Philippines. He had a he had put down a, a mutiny, which was called the, the Philippine Scouts Mutiny. He was very familiar with the territory. He lived in a penthouse suite in Manila's swankiest hotel. And what a lot of people don't know is that for 20 years, the United States, the Navy in particular, had been preparing for a Japanese attack of some sort. And they were certain it was going to come in the Philippines. They were somehow, the Japanese were going to try to lure the American Pacific Fleet into Manila Bay, and that's where the attack was going to come. Mm-hmm. So instead, Admiral Yamamoto, he, the, the great tactician and strategist, he he surprise attacks Pearl Harbor. The very next day, even though we were prepared in the Philippines, MacArthur had been recalled to active duty. He was now the commander of all United States forces in the Far East. He knew this was coming. He still suffered a devastating defeat in the Philippines. Mm. It was such a blight on his record uh, that he almost... He was seen as to be slinking out of the Philippines several months later when he finally left it in March. So that's the background of what we're talking about here. Just the nadir of the United States running away from the Philippines. And, of course, the Bataan death march that followed. And it was – it looked like the world was turned topsy-turvy. Right. Tom, would you like to add anything? Uh, just that, just to elaborate just very slightly on something Bob said. Uh, yeah, MacArthur, when he was called back to active duty, was 61 years old. Uh, he was making money as an employee of the Philippine government. He'd become a father at the age of 57. His son was only four years old. And the, the, the outbreak of the war was really inconvenient for him. You know, he, he had a pretty good future mapped out for himself there and was making a lot of money. And, and then the, the Japanese uh, didn't follow his script. And, uh, and, and there had been a study done, you know, like Bob said, years and years earlier that looked at Philippines as an invasion site. And as the you know, 20s into the 30s and got into the late 30s and air power became more of a consideration, it, it became pretty clear that it, was, it would be impossible to, to defend the Philippines success, successfully against the Japanese invasion. So in some ways, MacArthur was, you know, a victim of fate in the sense that, that there probably wasn't anything he really could have done of a practical nature to have uh, tossed the Japanese back into the sea. That being said, Ray, right. the United States did... Uh, have its largest contingent of warplanes stationed in the Philippines for just such an occasion as a Japanese invasion. And on the first day, December 8th, 1941, half of our bombers were destroyed. Three quarters of our uh, fighter planes were destroyed at Clark Airfield. Uh, It was MacArthur, of course, retreated to Corregidor, where where he received uh, the pejorative nickname Dugout Doug. Doug. I think it was William Manchester's American Caesar uh, reported that of the one, I mean, he was an imperious man, (laughs) of the 142 communiques that he sent to Washington from Corregidor, Mm -hmm. 109 of them mentioned only one soldier, General (laughs) Douglas MacArthur. (laughs) (laughs) But he was such, he was also such a relentless and and good self-promoter Right. That he was awarded the Medal of Honor for his defense of the Philippines, which the men he left at the Philippines who were subjected to first the Bataan Death March and then the Japanese prisoner of war camps. And we know how brutal they were uh, to them. This was just the blackest joke that could be. Right. Let me uh, let me follow a question. So to be blunt, whose fault was it, if, if, if fault can be put on one or whatever people, that we lost so many airplanes I'm assuming on the ground uh, when the Japanese came in. I mean, I think you said earlier that we were expecting an attack on in Philippines, but not on Pearl Harbor. But they were able to do significant damage to both, you know, within a very short time of each other. Um, aren't there scouts or aren't there any kind of lookouts or radar or anything like that? How were they able to Japanese as far as the Philippines go? Able to get I'll let Tom. I'll, I'll let Tom follow up on 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 his. Uh, his point he made before about fate being so important in this. But I just want to say one thing. Mm-hmm. Bad weather. They were, all right, they had word Pearl Harbor was being attacked. MacArthur 
you're, you have to be on the defensive. You are next. He knew they were coming. So he did the right thing. He got all his planes in the air. He didn't even have time to arm them. He just got them in the air wow. so they could not. So they were not subject to uh, to being wiped out on the ground. Mm-hmm. But bad weather held back the Japanese bomber fleet. And these planes were running out of gas. So they landed again. And instead of having them refueled with aviation fuel immediately and sent back into the air, MacArthur, I know this sounds like a bad comedy, but MacArthur ordered that the air crews could take a lunch break. Mm. And after lunch break, they get the planes back up in the air. And it was during this lunch break that the Japanese planes appeared overhead and just wiped out our, our, our air fleet. Wow. And I think another reason is that, which is one of the thre- you know important threads in our book, Lucky Six Six Six, is that the the Pacific Theater was uh, I'm not going to say ignored by the U.S. government and by extension the Allies, but it was a second, third, it was a fourth fiddle uh, to, to to what was going on in Europe. So the the MacArthur was really given. I mean, he he only came back to active duty in July 1941. Obviously, Pearl Harbor was was only five months later. He didn't have a lot of time to prepare, uh, and and the resources were were minimal at best that were being devoted to what was going on in in the south the Southwest Pacific. So, uh, and then you had you know the Japanese who were you know at the apex of their power, air power, sea power. So, uh, I, you know, if you want to blame, uh, I, I I'm of the opinion that. There was only so much. I mean, unless unless MacArthur performed miracles, there was really only so much he could do to stop the Japanese from what they considered their their destiny, which was to take over the entire Pacific. I'll agree with that, Tom. With the caveat that the man's imperiousness did not help him. I mean, this is a man who who insisted that his wife Mary address him as general. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to try that after this interview. Yeah. No wonder he didn't become a father until he was 57. <laughs> she was probably yelling, oh, Colonel. <laughs> but, but, but to Tom's point, he's absolutely right about the, the, uh, the supplies that were destined for the Southwest Pacific Theater. It was, it was maybe 10 to 15 percent of all Allied supplies. The rest, the 85 percent, were going to Europe. In fact, the, the dictum to all Southwest Pacific commanders, uh, Admiral Nimitz in the, in the Central Pacific and, and General MacArthur in the Southwest Pacific, was basically hold Hawaii, support Australia, and harass the Japanese mm-hmm. uh, wherever you can. Wait till we win the, Euro- the war in Europe and then we'll turn uh, upon the Japanese Empire. And uh, that, 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 of course, added to MacArthur's wo- uh, woes. But it must be said that the man, well, he was, you know, he was an old infantryman. Mm-hmm. And he had no use, MacArthur was, and he had no use, well, he didn't have no use, but he had a little use. He didn't see how air power and especially sea power were going to win this war. His feuds with the Navy were legendary. And they all started because the line that was drawn down the 106th Meridian and Admiral Nimitz was given control to the east of that line, and General MacArthur was given control to the west of that line, which included uh, New Guinea, Australia, New Zealand, the Philippines. Uh, And MacArthur pictured himself as the Pacific Ike. He was the Eastern Ike. He wanted control all of his own. Mm -hmm. But the Navy, as I said before, which had been preparing for this war for 20 years, was not about to to allow, uh, was it Halsey who called him a megalomaniac with a corn cob pipe? (laughs) The Navy was not about to allow, uh, to allow their ships to be under the command of this man. I mean, at one point he wanted to abolish the Marine Corps. And because of the 25,000 Americans, uh, American soldiers in, in Australia that we got to Australia within a year after Pearl Harbor, the vast majority 60, 70, 75% were airmen. Mm-hmm. And so MacArthur did not have an, entry, uh, an infantry corps, so to speak. He had some Australian units. He had some American units. But he wanted to abolish the Marine Corps and bring them into the Army under his command and invade New Britain. And as you can well imagine, first of all, it was a fairly harebrained scheme. And second of all, to this day, I know Marines who do not forgive him for that. Wow. So let me, I'm sorry, Tom, did you have a follow-up? 
Uh, just a quick question, Bob. Refresh my memory. Didn't uh, MacArthur have something to do with the court martial of Billy Mitchell? You know, yes. Some, yes. Uh, some of your 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 followers Ray, will will remember Billy Mitchell was this uh, was this uh, visionary mm-hmm. who could see years in advance the impact that air power was going to have, and then of course they court martialed him. Some people have seen the film with Gary Cooper, and I believe MacArthur had was part yes. either part of the prosecution or part of the he panel was, he was part of the prosecution. Him. He voted to. Uh, to uh, to court martial him, Billy Mitchell was basically drummed out of the uh, mm-hmm. U.S. Army Air Force, and that's yeah. one of the reasons when MacArthur finally made it to Australia from Corregidor, and there was a general named Brett George Brett in charge. Or was it George Brett? Tom? Yeah, Brett was the name of the guy. Mm-hmm. But he was in charge of the uh, U.S. Army Air Force. There was no Air Force at the time. We'll, we'll, we'll right. get this straight right up. There was no separate service of an Air Force. It was the U.S. Army Air Force. Uh, the Marines had planes. The Navy, had, the Navy had planes. And the general, the U.S. Army General, Brett, in charge of the U.S. Army Air Force, not only did he feel that he should be in charge of Australia, and here's MacArthur usurping his power, mm-hmm. but Brett was also a very good friend of Billy Mitchell. Ooh. And he never forgave MacArthur Man. for for voting to court-martial him. Mm-hmm. And so once MacArthur arrived in 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 uh, where he, before he went to uh, Brisbane, he arrived in Melbourne. And when he arrived in Melbourne with a pomp and circumstances, he got off the train with his Philippine guards, snappily dressed, and and he just started ordering around Brett to the point where it wasn't long before Brett and MacArthur and their staffs were not even talking to each other. There was there was no official communications. And when Brett wanted a meeting with MacArthur, he couldn't get one. And this played not well in Washington. And George George Marshall, the at one point, said we, we have to do something about this. And he and he approached uh, uh, he approached Jimmy Doolittle, and he said we need a new U.S. Army uh, Air Air Force commander in under MacArthur. And Doolittle, who by this time had already was already famous, had made his raid on Tokyo in April of 1942. Mm-hmm. He wanted nothing to do with working under <laughs> MacArthur. And frankly, even though MacArthur in his official memos was, I forget the exact word, saddened that uh, General Doolittle had instead chosen to be transferred to Europe, MacArthur wanted nothing to do with Jimmy Doolittle. He didn't want anybody who was going to overpower his public persona and MacArthur liked his he liked his press he liked his press conferences and Jimmy Doolittle would have just uh put him in the background so uh this is all kind of a lead into the bulldog General Kenny who is one of uh one one of our favorite characters in Lucky 666 Tom Mm. tell us why well, General Kenny was was uh, Bulldog was a nickname of his. He was a, 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 a short, somewhat short statured, stocky, pugnacious kind of guy. Uh, very smart guy. I mean, he had been involved in a number of innovations involving uh, air war uh, before the war actually began. And when uh, when Doolittle turned the job down, uh, it, it, the, the Kenny was the next man up, and he took the job to create what would become the Fifth Air Force. And he was a smart guy. I mean, he, he when he met with MacArthur, he didn't uh, he didn't try and lock horns with MacArthur so that they would fight each other or over who had uh, the, the the authority. Mm-hmm. He right away recognized and said to MacArthur, "You know, you're the boss." Uh, and uh, but uh, but I have some ideas. I think you'll like them. And but MacArthur basically said. Why don't you go and do something and come back to me and and with with good results? And that's what Kenny basically did. He he started to do these innovations. He started to change things. He there was you know there's a certain he kept bumping up against as we mentioned earlier that there was a, a, a great lack of resources. Uh, almost everything was going to the European theater. Uh, but Kenny uh, was was one of those guys also who the the people under him liked him. You know he cared a lot about his men. Uh, he he he. He was not a guy. He wasn't a General Grant kind of guy from the Civil War. Just, just keep throwing him into the front, and you know, we'll just, we'll just outnumber the rebels, uh, mm-hmm. even if we have to get twenty thousand casualties. You know, Kenny knew his pilots, and 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 they cared a lot about him, and he cared about them. And so, uh, as he was going back to MacArthur, he was able step by step to say, "We're doing this. We've done this. We've done this." And MacArthur would basically say, you know, you guys just keep doing it. Keep doing what you're doing. 
So so Brett is uh, in Lucky Six 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 one of our favorite characters because Kenny, uh, General Kenny, uh, Kenny, sorry Kenny, mm-hmm. because we you know we've written about World War Two before, but I think it wasn't until this book that we really understood there was somebody named General Kenny, uh, and and most likely the, the the guys who call themselves Ken's men did that because they named themselves after Kenny. There was a great loyal following. And he's kind of like an unsung hero. He played a pivotal role in turning the war around in the Pacific. Yet you don't, you know, when you talk about the top generals in World War II, his name does not come right to your lips. Mm. Let me Ray, ask, I, just op- yeah. I just opened up Lucky 666. I just wanted to find one thing, and I just found it. At sure. their first meeting, uh, General Kenny walked into MacArthur's office. And, of course, he knew the background with Brett. He knew the background with Doolittle. He knew the background with MacArthur. He knew what kind of general he was dealing with, what what kind of commander he was dealing with. Right. And this is what he said to him. I'm not, and I'm reading because I don't want to get the, the quote wrong. This is from uh, Kenny's memoir. He told MacArthur, I didn't ask to come out here. You asked for me. My gang is always loyal to me, and through me, they will be loyal to you. You be loyal to me and my gang and make this 50-50 or I'll be calling you from San Francisco, San Francisco, and telling you that I quit. <laughs> and, and and as as we write in, in Lucky Six Six Six, at this MacArthur rises from his big oak desk, and you know his famous downturned mouth, and he walks around the desk. Kenny doesn't. Uh, Kenny's thinking, ah, I guess I'm out of here. And <laughs> finally, the patrician mask breaks, and MacArthur. Uh, smiles. He, he never smiled. He grinned, and as, as Kenny wrote, he grinned and put a hand on my shoulder and said, I think we're going to get along all right. <laughs> so, Kenny had just, did. He, he had instinctively played to MacArthur's massive ego in order to thaw what uh, uh, the, the, the frosty shell that, that, this, that this man was. And as Tom said, Kenny's innovations were legion and of course, MacArthur was getting credit for him. Right. So why wouldn't he like this guy? <laughs> why wouldn't? In fact, Kenny even loosened up MacArthur. Uh, MacArthur started calling uh, Ken, Kenny's kids Buccaneers. Mm-hmm. And Kenny would get him on the phone at three in the morning saying, you know, the six destroyers escorting a convoy down the slot. We've already sank two. Sorry to call you at three in the morning. <laughs> MacArthur said, you and your Buccaneers can call me at any time in the morning with that kind of news. An hour later, he called him back. We got a third. An hour later, he called him back. We got a fourth. It got to the point where, once again, as I mentioned before, MacArthur loved his press conferences. And at one of them, a reporter asked him, so who are we bombing today? Where are we bombing today? And uh, MacArthur's reply was, why don't you ask General Kenny? And the reporter was a bit stunned, saying, sir, are you telling me you don't know where we're bombing today? And he said, yeah, I know where we're bombing today. We're bombing where there's Japs, because General <laughs> Kenny's in charge. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask a, a couple of follow-up questions, and then I just want to visit Corregidor uh, just for a moment before we go on. So I know this is later on in the war, but there's a mention in uh, American Caesar where I, I think it's um, – uh, MacArthur, or I think it's MacArthur, who basically says, you know, if you keep this up, not sending enough, uh, sending us enough supplies so I can fulfill my pledge to go back to uh, the Philippines, maybe America should make the the Pacific Theater uh, primary and Europe uh, secondary. I mean, that was probably never going to happen, but you truly do get a sense of how frustrated he and others in that field were, were with the limited supplies. I think in your book, Lucky 666, I think it was no more than 15% of war production. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just incredible that they took on the Japanese with that. But just, just one question, if we could go back to Corregidor. You, you mentioned um, uh, MacArthur's uh, patrician features, his patrician, um, his countenance. Uh, I'm assuming, cause, and I apologize, I don't know this, did he come from money? Was there generations of money? Was, I mean, what explained his um, patrician uh, outlook, well, for, for for one thing, MacArthur came from military nobility. Mm-hmm. His uh, his father had won the Medal of Honor in the Civil War. Wow! And and so and and MacArthur himself was was a graduated class of 1903 in West Point. Uh, you know, and with that kind of pedigree, to have a heroic fa- a father and and uh, MacArthur rose you know rather quickly through the ranks and had a number of prestige. Jobs, you know, including uh, fighting in World War One, but you know, Bob had mentioned before about uh, other other jobs that he had that were prestige jobs in, in the military. Chief of so, staff of the army, and he was chief in charge of the, of the army at Amsterdam, and 
Mm. Yeah, and and so when he retired, uh, he was he was really at the top of his game, and and uh, you know he 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 retired because there was no war at the time, and he had an opportunity to make make a lot of money uh, in the Philippines. But but his um, there was no reason for him to think less of himself. You know, he was, at, and back home in the United States, you know, he was a very well-known figure. And, you know, when, when, there, when his, his, his safety was jeopardized, when there was a concern that he could actually be captured uh, and put in a Japanese POW camp, there were these breathless headlines back in the States about, would MacArthur get out? You know, you go all the way back to uh, General Chinese Gordon in Khartoum in the 1880s. You know, will will General Gordon get out? Will he make his way safely out of there? Well, this was a similar situation. Would MacArthur be sacrificed to the to the Japanese uh, as as a, as a symbol of of uh, he was seen as a symbol of American resistance? Uh, but here's here's a here's another kind of offbeat, funny. I don't maybe funny is the wrong word. Anecdote. <laughs> When he finally got a PT boat, snuck him out of Corregidor in the middle of the night, and he got to a larger island with an airfield, and General Brett sent a B-17 to pick him up. Mm -hmm. And MacArthur looked at the plane, and he said, I'm not flying in that rickety B-17. He immediately wired General Brett and General Marshall in Washington, Mm. demanding that Brett send his three best bombers to pick him and his retinue up. (laughs) And there's there's kind of a coda to this story. The pilot who was flying that original rickety B-17 to go get MacArthur, uh, Harl Pierce, uh, months later won the Congressional Medal of Honor. (laughs) Uh, mm-hmm. For his actions yeah, yeah. over rebel, yeah. So and, uh, yeah, right. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved. You've researched. You've invested all that you can. Now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses: Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing, it's all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Dot com. Well, right. l- let me ask about, um, and I don't know if we'll get to it tonight. We might have to bring you gentlemen back on. MacArthur later on is going to get an opportunity to prove that he is a very good, uh, a brilliant tactician, a strategist, he'll, 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 once he has the resources. But let's go back to Corregidor for a second. So I got the sense that he was very brave and willing to stay with his men, stay on Corregidor, even though that's like a little island just, you know, south of Batan. But um, I got the sense that, you know, he pretty much had to be forced off the island. I mean, um, FDR doesn't want him to get captured because of the propaganda. Australia is saying, send us back our men from the Middle East and you're not taking us seriously. And it's almost like FDR had to give them MacArthur to show how serious he was. But you really got the sense that he was like determined to stay there with his men and suffer the same fate. And that probably meant his wife and little boy as well. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's. Uh, he was asked about that at, at, by by a reporter at the at the time of his of uh, this crisis that uh, you know, what about your four year old son? And mm-hmm. and uh, he, he and, and his reply was, he's a soldier's son. Wow. You know, like the four year old would share has to share the risk because that's <laughs> that's what you do. But uh, but yes, it, it literally happened. I mean, it was on February twenty third that that uh, uh, MacArthur got this message that was from b- both uh, the President Roosevelt and the Secretary of War and from General Marshall and and saying to him, you know, you do not have the option of saying I'm going to stay behind 
and allow myself to become a prisoner of the Japanese. I mean, that would have been a disastrous uh, PR move uh, for, for that to happen. So, so MacArthur uh, was ordered to get out of there. You know, it wasn't like he gave in. Like he right. he caved in and said, you know what, I'm, I'm getting out of here. I'm not going to be a POW for the next uh, you know uh, unlimited amount of years. Uh, he was ordered to, to 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 get out of there any way he could. Unfortunately, the men he left behind did not see it that way. Right. And uh, that, as I mentioned before, that's where he got the appellation Dugout Doug, because he never came out of the dugout. And then once he did reach Australia and before the the United States and Filipino Army surrendered, he issued several uh, what can only be just, I guess if you were in the field in the Philippines, could only be described as arrogant commands. Like one in particular that strikes me is if you're running out of food, prepare to starve and attack the enemy. And so generals and officers he had left behind in the Philippines saw these kind of commands as, hey, this guy's eaten flank steak in Australia, and he's telling us to prepare to starve and attack the enemy with bayonets. Uh, What kind of commander is this? So there was that dichotomy, as Tom says, the United States, for the greater good, they could not have this man captured. But the men he left behind held a bitterness towards him that uh, that most of them never let go of. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry, Tom. Go sorry, ahead. Tom. No, no. Go ahead. Uh, j- just and this is the one thing that I would really love your opinion on. I'm I'm sitting there reading American Caesar, and I'm reading the messages that are coming to MacArthur. Um, when he's on Corregidor and after that, I mean, to me, they let, they, they pretty much gave him the impression that help was on the way when he got to Australia, he expected to see boats and planes and, and tanks and, and troops. I mean, they, to me, they really did lead him on to thinking that he was going to be able to turn around and go to back to the Philippines pretty quickly. And so of course he's giving all these statements. I will be back. I will be back. But to his thinking and the impression he gave was, it was going to be, a lot sooner than what really happened. Did Washington lie to him? Was it a necessary lie? Or was he just reading way too much into their signals, into their messages? I think he was reading way way too much. In fact, I know it was because he was under the impression that, uh, as I said, he was going to be the Eastern Ike and that Nimitz's entire Pacific fleet was going to be under his command. Mm -hmm. And once he got to Australia and found out that the Joint Chiefs had split the command between Nimitz to the east and him to the west. And at some point, I think Nimitz did promise him a small flotilla. They called it MacArthur's Navy, but it never really showed up. In fact, they were afraid. Halsey, Nimitz, the admirals, they were afraid to send their ships to Australia for repair. Mm-hmm. Because they were afraid MacArthur would seize them he would. and keep them for his own. <laughs> I think he would have. I think you're right. I think he would have absolutely yeah. he, he would have done that. Oh, my God. Uh, Tom, but Tom, I think but also, too, they, want, they wanted to not deceive him, but they, they didn't want to you know, let MacArthur know probably the, the extent of how bad the situation was. I mean, because there could have been a concern that, that uh, if they really, if MacArthur was really informed uh, candidly how bleak the situation was, mm-hmm. A, he might have said, geez, I might as well get captured. Because you know? <laughs> right. there's nothing really much to go back to. Or he might have gotten, gotten out of there, and then there was always the possibility he could just resign. Mm-hmm. Hey, listen, I've done my bit. I'm going. I'm turn, about to turn 62 years old. I've got. I've got a son to raise, uh, and and I'm out of here. Let somebody else, uh, you know, d- d- preside over what's probably going to be a disaster. So I, I don't think the the, the top, top military brass wanted to be completely honest with MacArthur. Yeah. Let me. It was uh, only at the summit in uh, was it 1942? No. What was the Stalin? Uh, what year, Tom? What year was the Stalin Roosevelt Churchill summit? Well, there was the one at Yalta, which I that's think that's what I'm talking. Yeah, that's probably February 43. 43. Oh, no, 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 the okay. earlier one. There was one before then. then. Yeah, the earlier one. But they met. They met in in, in uh, what was then Persia. Was it Tehran? Yeah, Tehran. I think yeah, forty three. Yeah, and it yeah. was at Tehran where uh, where George Marshall dropped a hint to uh, both Stalin and Churchill. But Churchill in particular, because Churchill had been the one really pushing Roosevelt, Europe first, Europe first, Europe first, then we'll turn our attention to the Japanese Empire. 
But by that point, there had been so many pleas from the Southwest Pacific, from Kenny, from MacArthur. You know, we're using flattened bean cans to patch up bullet holes. We're using uh, Australian Kotexes as air filters in our bombers. We're using the, the sixpence coin made a perfect magneto to start. I mean, they were literally sending these planes up the, in with Rube Goldberg-like uh, uh, fixes, repairs. And finally, uh, it was the, it was it was. General Marshall, yes, it was General Marshall. And he finally put the word to Churchill, listen, uh, if we don't start diverting some more of our supplies and provisions and and grounds crews and equipment to the Southwest Pacific, we might just consider pulling out of Europe altogether and defending the West Coast of the United States. Wow. And that got Churchill's, <laughs> that got Churchill's <laughs> antenna up. And so they made a deal where another 10%, so it went from 15% to 25% mm -hmm. of all American armaments, ground crews, would go to the Southwest Pacific. But there was almost a, a hitch to that, too, because the Southwest Pacific also included uh, India, where the British were still holding out. So a lot of that went to India. So it yeah. didn't really help Kenny and MacArthur all that much, but it was a nice kind of public relations break. Staggering. Tom, let me ask you, um, so the men that MacArthur leaves behind, they're obviously resisting as best they can uh, in, uh, in the Philippines. Does the fact that they hang out, that they hang on a little longer, does that help slow down Japanese forces going even further south? Did they, did they make a difference? Uh, because you've got to think of you the wider war as well. Yeah, I, I think I, certainly in their mind they thought they were, and and it, it had to be you know perhaps the only thing to console themselves because they were, they were just in a very bleak situation, uh, and and did it slow down the Jap? It, it didn't. It didn't prevent the inevitable. Mm -hmm. You know, it didn't. You know, uh, the Japanese yes were probably slowed, uh, but it didn't end up making a difference. The mm -hmm. Japanese. Pretty much were able to take over almost everything they wanted to. I mean, ultimately, what the Japanese wanted to do was either invade Australia or isolate Australia so much and cut it off from the United States and all supply lines that Australia mm -hmm. would basically withdraw from the war and and maybe make some kind of deal and say, listen, we're, we're just going to shut ourselves down here and mind our own business. And Japanese, you can go ahead and do what you want. Right. Just leave us alone. Uh, so, uh, you know, what, what these men, you know, it, it, it really was a great bravery and heroism because they had to know that the absolute best they could hope for was to slow the Japanese down, and probably not by very much, and most likely not to make ultimately any difference in the, in the Pacific War, at least what the Japanese were able to gain. Uh, but... You know, you look at or you look at the moral victory. You look at their example, their bravery, and 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 that kind of that kind of uh, great courage was part of what, uh, especially in the Pacific, where resources were so few. But that that great courage was was really what helped eventually turn things around and beat what was a vastly superior foe. Mm -hmm. Ray, I know we're jumping around here, but Tom's uh, mention of Australia and the very real fear the Australians had, any Allies had that the Japanese would invade soon. Right. There was a secret plan by the uh, Australian Prime Minister Kern, I believe his name was, it uh, that they were ready to see the top third of the continent. Wow! They were ready to pull pull back to Melbourne and wow. basically let the Japan Japanese have the top third of Australia. That's how that's how close things were run back then. And when the Southern Force, the Japanese Southern Force, captured Rabul pretty much without a fight. Mm -hmm. And Rabul became the new Gibraltar, became the new fortress of the Pacific. In fact, that's what they called it, Fortress Rabul right. uh, on the island of uh, New Britain. The Japanese just saw, okay, we can go south to Australia. We've already got the top half of New Guinea. New Zealand doesn't matter. We could go east to Pearl Harbor and from then jump to the west coast of the United States. And these were, I mean, we look back at it now, and as if, oh, that could have never happened. But these were very real fears in, in Washington and in Melbourne and in every Pacific capital at the time. So, okay, so we've got, um, we've got uh, MacArthur. He's in Australia. He's waiting on supplies, and he's waiting and waiting and waiting. Uh, but then you've got his I shall return um, 
promise, speech, whatever. Could could you tell mm-hmm. us about that, please? He does it a couple of times. You know, there there's uh, uh, when when he uh, for, when he's arriving, he arrives in Australia, and I think Bob mentioned earlier about he's on this 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 uh, this, this train ride, and uh, and uh, you know he he is the first time he. He he said it. It's in this place called a small town in South Australia called Terawi, mm-hmm. and it was on March twentieth. He says, "I came through and I shall return," and he he repeats that a couple other times in, in the stops. I think you know he realized he had come up with a really good phrase. You know he was a he was a savvy PR guy, and so uh, and, and it became a, a rallying cry and and that kind of uh, that kind of uh, combination of hubris and defiance. <laughs> Uh, you know, translated well when this this was being reported back in the United States that, you know, MacArthur. I think one reason why MacArthur and and Bull Halsey ended up getting along quite well is that they both were were very. Uh, they realized that uh, their their kind of spunk, uh, that their kind of aggressiveness uh, translated well to the to the the people back home in the United States that lifted their morale, mm-hmm. and uh, and so that's so MacArthur. I mean, just by being by being an administrator and eventually being able to put responsibilities in the hands of people like Kenny and others, uh, and just by continuing to exist as a symbol of American resistance uh, and defiance, that was a, went a large way to, to, to uh, winning the war in the Pacific. Not, not a few uh, newspapermen and magazine writers made the analogy, you know, as, as Tom mentioned before, Kenny was five foot four. Uh, he had this big, thick kind of hangdog lower lip. Uh, that's where he got the nickname, the bulldog. And uh, and when he and MacArthur would walk together, MacArthur was a very tall man, patrician, straight, the shoulders back. Mm-hmm. And they looked like Jimmy Cagney and Arthur Murray. <laughs> <laughs> and and But they, as a team, they worked. They worked mm-hmm. like MacArthur and Doolittle would not have worked. Right. They worked like MacArthur and Brett did not work. They they knew they both chafed at being in a backwater, so to speak. Mm-hmm. They weren't the the Eighth Army in Europe was always the mighty Eighth, and Kenny dubbed his uh, the Eighth Army, the Eighth Air Force. I'm sorry, the Eighth Air Force in Europe was always known in every uh, newspaper report. It was the mighty Eighth, right. and so Kenny dubbed his Fifth Air Force, U.S. Army Air Force, the Forgotten Fifth, and. He was. He felt that he got the dregs that didn't go to England, but he shaped these men. And MacArthur gave him, to MacArthur's credit, he gave him a free enough hand that the hold, uh, hold, hold the line basically, mm-hmm. hold Hawaii, protect Australia. It worked. And though these two men were offensive terriers to start with. And they went after the Japanese whenever they could, whether it was on their air bases in northern New Guinea, whether it was bombing Rabul itself, whether it was going after Japanese shipping coming down the slot to, towards Guadalcanal, whether it was the Battle of the Coral Sea. They, when there was a place to go on the offensive, they went on the offensive within the overall scheme of their orders to keep the Japanese Empire in abeyance until we can devote, until the United States can devote its full attention to it. Okay. Um, to, so however you would like to do this, so give us an idea you know, between uh, the um, Fortress Rabul, the slot to the Guadalcanal, give us an idea of the story of America beginning to get off the mat once again, um, and, and like, you, like you were saying, go on the offensive against the Japanese as best they could. Uh, so basically, when is MacArthur able to, I guess, have enough supplies or to start to take the fight to them so he can, he can even think about getting back to the Philippines one day? Well, it's interesting that you, that way you put it. Have enough supplies? I don't know that he ever did, or, or if he did. It was it was it was late. It was later in the war. We're probably talking about maybe wow. forty three into forty four. You know, the Pacific always. Uh, you know, to, uh, until the surrender of of uh, the, the Germans in the spring of forty five, uh, the Pacific was always you know second fiddle. Uh, but you know what seemed to happen was that uh, you you had the ground crews that were, as Bob mentioned before, they were making do with. Next to nothing, and they became very good at making do 
with next to nothing. And the the uh, the bomber crews uh, were you know going out at, at mission after mission after mission. Uh, there was an innovation that Kenny and one of his officers, uh, Major Ben, uh, uh, and, and others came up with called skip bombing, uh, which was a way to literally like like bounce bombs off the off the surface of almost off the surface of the water mm-hmm. to, to hit targets uh from the air and uh it was an interesting innovation that allowed for greater accuracy and really just more bang for their buck uh in these in these air raids on on Japanese shipping uh, so it was that, and 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 really, you know, we, we our main character, our main characters, Lucky Six Six Six, Jay Zimmer and Joe Sarnowski were the kinds of kinds of men that they uh, they just kept going out on mission after mission, and uh, the the endurance of these people is remarkable because uh, you know we don't necessarily belabor this point, but you know we we, we point out that that in 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 Europe, uh, if you were going on a bombing mission. You know, you could go from England and fly a mission over to France. You know, in a, in a couple hours, and, and with fighter and, escorts, and with fighter escorts, because right. you didn't have to worry about long range fuel capacity with with these targets that were pretty accessible. But when you were taking off on a bombing mission in the Pacific, and you were going to bomb something that was four hundred, five hundred, even six hundred miles away, uh, there was no fighter escort because they didn't have the fuel capacity. And these guys would would be on these missions that lasted twelve hours or more in these cramped B seventeen uh, uh, planes, and and the uh, you know the endurance was just so remarkable. But that's what it took. They had to, in a lot of ways. They just out endured the Japanese until the Japanese started to lose more. That, you know, another thing too that we mentioned in the book is that the Japanese could have could less afford their losses than the Americans could. And I guess what I mean by that is when the Japanese lost the aircraft carrier, they didn't have the manufacturing capacity that they could replace it or at least replace it in the near future. Uh, but the American manufacturing power was just so much greater. You know, and as an example, in, in uh, the Battle of the Coral Sea, I think it is, we lost the USX Lexington, a, uh, an aircraft carrier. Mm-hmm. And, and by, by 1944, there was another USX Lexington <laughs> in, in the Pacific. The ghost, so, the ghost ship, they called her, because the, the Japanese the ghost ship. said, hey, wait a minute, we sank, we sank this ship. What, what's it doing out here yeah. sailing? And it was back. You know, it was, it was the Lazarus of, of, of aircraft carriers. It came back to life. Uh, so, so that's, you know, the combination of things that, that started to turn the tide and, and just, you know, but, but one of the most things I enjoyed most about working on Lucky 666 was to explore the, those first, you know, the January, February, March, April, uh, May period of 1942. We're now in that 75th anniversary period mm-hmm. in which we, America was really, and the Allies were really on the mat. You know, and the ref was counting counting to ten. Right. And and the fact that they got off the mat is just such a remarkable story. I'll tell you what, Ray. It, 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 in a bit of a specific answer to your question, mm-hmm. we started off this uh, conversation with uh, perhaps MacArthur's retreat from the Philippines from Corregidor being the nadir right. of of World War II. Uh, in May of 1942, now it was, it did not turn the tide of the war, but the Battle of the Coral Sea, mm-hmm. when we were victorious in the even though we lost more ships than the Japanese, but we were seen to be victorious because for morale reasons in the Battle of the Coral Sea, I think that might have been the first tentative step off the canvas, as you put it. I mean, it would be followed by Midway and other victories, and there was a long way to go. But I think uh, on the other side of of the planet, uh, at about the same time as the Battle of the Coral Sea, Winston Churchill had called victories in North Africa. This might not be the beginning of the end, but this might be the end of the beginning. Ah. I believe the Coral Sea might fall into that category also. Mm-hmm. Yeah, from what yeah. I got from your okay. book, Lucky 666, when I was reading about the, the Battle of the Coral Sea, it was like America almost acknowledged and gave itself credit for standing up to the Japanese and fighting them toe-to-toe. Like you said, we lost more ships, but we hung in there and we fought. And I think it, I think it was almost like a, a signal to ourselves, hey, we can fight these guys and we can give it to them as, as much as we take. And the one thing that I, I know that's true in Germany, and I'm just assuming it was... Um, 
true in the Pacific was when you have a bunch of Americans come and, and they're whether they're infantry or pilots or mechanics or whatever, you're getting a pretty good cross section of people who have a lot of different skills based on whatever they were doing before they were um, drafted or joined up or whatever. So I just imagine these guys just flying on a wing in a prayer, but they've got this collective knowledge of very weird and um, odd skills that makes that kind of thing possible. Well, that goes back to the innovations we talked about, hammering out the bean cans to uh, to (laughs) plug the bullet holes or using uh, sanitary napkins as air filters. (laughs) As a footnote to the Battle of the Coral Sea, it was the first naval battle in the history of mankind where ships did not fire upon each other. That's staggering. I mean, yeah, Yeah, you can't imagine that. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Tom. No, I was just going to say it was it was the the ships never really caught sight of each other. There were no you know broadsides as they as they raked at the, each other's decks or anything like that, mm-hmm. or even the, the long range uh, guns uh, engaged each other, which had been the case previously in naval warfare. Uh, this was strictly they they never caught sight of each other, and the battle the, this naval quote battle was fought in the in, in, with planes. Yeah. Uh, so 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 we're uh, we're getting close to an hour. Let me just ask you this: So you've got the Americans starting to get a little bit more supplies. We're we're, we're trying to get on the offensive here. You've got this two pronged offensive. You've got uh, I guess MacArthur uh, in the west. You've got Nimitz in the east. Just give us give us an idea of what the overall strategy was as try as far as trying to push the Japanese back to the home island. All right, let, let's. Uh, you know, Tom will probably want to end it, but I, I'm thinking. Your question is very well posed because there were there was a two pronged approach, mm-hmm. and as MacArthur and Kenny got their Fifth Air Force up off the ground in Australia and finally established in Port Moresby, New Guinea, mm-hmm. MacArthur saw saw Port Moresby as the 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 springboard for sweeping up through. Western and Northern New Guinea at the same point further to the East by August of 1942, all these Marines had taken Guadalcanal and they were working their way up the, the, uh, the island chain mm-hmm. to Bougainville, which was the island just South of New Britain, which housed Fortress Rabul. Oh. And so you're almost looking at a pincer mo a pincer movement. Mm-hmm. And with the two of them, despite all the differences, working in concert, this is what, if not for the average Joe reading the newspaper back home, this in the halls of the War Department in Washington, this is what gave the United States hope. I mean, we're still fighting. It was still a European first strategy. Right. Yeah, with Germany first, then the Pacific. But while we'll... While, while we are still fighting Germany in 1943, they're beginning to see the outlines of how the vaunted Japanese Empire can be defeated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it allowed for the 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 the, the, the island hopping strategy that uh, you know we we had to take one thing back. You know, okay, we take back Guadalcanal, and we could take back this island and take this back, and you know, you could sort of get this image in your mind of. Of this, uh, you know, bedraggled, wounded uh, soldier dragging himself from one island to the next and gaining a little more strength and gaining more traction, and that was basically what the Allied war effort was, you know, especially led by the by the Americans. And uh, I believe it was it was Nimitz that that and, and Ernest King, uh, who was Nimitz's boss as naval operations. who uh, came up with this, the idea of doing the island hopping strategy. Eventually, what they did. Uh, which I think you know most people would agree turned out to be a very smart move, is that they they bypassed Rabaul. Uh, you know, it was a fortress. Bob mentioned before it was Fortress Rabaul, mm-hmm. and so uh, it would have been a lot of uh, you know spend expenditure of lives and treasure uh, to have taken it. So they said, well, you know what? Why don't we just go around it? And that's basically what they did. They isolated it, and it was never really a factor for the rest of the war. Uh, they just went past it as they as they, they inexorably marched towards Tokyo. Since we're, we're since since we're kind of celebrating the anniversary until of uh, well, not celebrating. I'm sorry, that's the wrong word. We're talking about the anniversary of the retreat from the Philippines and Corregidor and MacArthur. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think I, I, a nice place to end this was what Tom just said. 
that was all Halsey's idea to, idea to, to island hop up the Solomon Islands chain. MacArthur hated it. He wanted to attack Rabol. Yeah. He wanted Rabol to fall. <laughs> it was personal. But they finally convinced him, listen, once we take Bougainville, we'll have isolated Rabol. Right. You take New Guinea, and there's your chance to return to the Philippines. Yes. And so they finally convinced him. Yeah. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah. So, yeah, so just give us a little bit, because it's an hour, almost an hour. I appreciate your time, gentlemen. Just give us a little bit more sure. on MacArthur return and then I just have uh, just a general follow-up question and, and I think we'll uh, we'll have a good place to stop it. Sounds good. Okay. Oh, yeah. oh, go ahead, Tom. Well, you know, when, when MacArthur returned, you know, again, we're talking about the public relations value. Uh, yes, strategically, it was important that, that the American forces and the Allied forces were, were, were retook the Philippines. It was extremely important. I mean, one of the things that that did to Japan is it cut off a big part of their supplies. You know, they got raw materials from the Philippines. There was, mm-hmm. so there was, the Philippines were a very important part of the Japanese war effort. And when the Philippines, they lost the Philippines, from a you know yes from a, a, a war point of view that was a huge blow no doubt about it yeah. but the PR value was enormous I mean the the, the there are stories about how many times or if, if the entire photo was staged of MacArthur wading through the surf you know to to walk up on the beach mm-hmm. uh, but you know you can take a photo like that very very powerful image and go send it back to the United States and you know what better representation that we are indeed winning the war. That 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 MacArthur did actually return, and there's a photo of him literally, you know, walking up the beach in triumph, nice. uh, to, to and fulfilling his promise from a couple of years earlier. So, uh, it was an enormous morale booster uh, back in the United States. And I'll, and I'll, I'll add one thing to that, Ray. Uh, Tom seems to be the big picture guy tonight, and I'm the footnote guy. But the footnote <laughs> to that is, when MacArthur did return and invaded the Philippines. He was almost driven back because Halsey was tricked by the Japanese and he went off chasing a ghost fleet. Oh, my God. <laughs> and Halsey was supposed yeah. to be guarding MacArthur's flank. Oh, my yeah. God. Uh, he might have to return a second time. So um, <laughs> I'm assuming, I think I read somewhere, and please correct me, the leader of the Philippines, I, um, was he in the United States? Or he, he was Manuel not, Quezon. Yeah. Manuel Quezon was his name, and, and no. He uh, he evacuated uh, almost the same time. MacArthur went to Corregidor. Manuel Quezon was not too proud to accept a flight out of Manila in a rickety B-17. So he was evacuated out of Manila before MacArthur left Corregidor to the uh, to Australia. Okay. So after reading your book and uh, and taking your advice and looking at American Caesar, I certainly do have a lot more respect. For MacArthur and the way he's able to push north and, and the harassing that they did with their with the planes with Kenny, you really do come to appreciate his um, his ability as a leader, as a tactician, that kind of stuff. So I, I thank you for turning me around on him because I did, I didn't like him for the longest time because he was so obnoxious. Let me let me just follow. Let me just end this with one open ended obnoxious. American question. So if I if it leaves a bad taste in your mouth, I apologize. So you you made reference to this already. Uh, whereas the uh, the United States loses a carrier, the Lexington, they're able to build one relatively quickly. You know, obviously in the same war, the Japanese probably couldn't have done that. I mean, j- just being an arrogant American for a second, what chance did Japan truly have? I mean, unless you literally, from what I can tell knock America out of the war or, or or get a treaty or you somehow are able to halt their ability to produce war goods, how do they how how do, how do they see this ending up or playing out? I mean, were they hoping to just inflict damage and set up a line of defenses and it would be so expensive for America to come back that they we would just stop and I'm just I'm trying to get a sense of their of their larger picture. Very succinctly, Ray, Yamamoto, Admiral Yamamoto himself mm-hmm. warned uh, uh, the emperor that if we don't knock America out of the war in 18 months, we're going to lose this war. 
and their whole strategy was predicated on catching the American aircraft carriers at Pearl Harbor. And once they did not catch the American aircraft carriers at Pearl Harbor, they were done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, we used it for the boxing analogy already. I mean, America is like Rocky Balboa, yeah. and if, if you if you if you allowed this guy to get up off the canvas, he was going to just wear you down yeah. and eventually win win the fight. And that's that. You know exactly what Bob said. Yamamoto is a very smart man, and and uh, and when when we did not when Japan did not deliver that knockout blow. Uh, he had some deep, deep reservations about Japan, Japan being able to ultimately prevail, and and he, you know, he didn't live. To, he was he was killed in 1943. Um, he didn't live to see the end of the war, but I don't think the outcome would have surprised him in the least. Right. So what's that, that famous saying, if you come after the king, you better not miss? So they went after the right. carriers, and they didn't get the carriers, and they paid the price. Wow. Right. Right. Well, exactly. Gentlemen, Mr. Bob Drury, Tom Clavin, thank you very much for being on the show thank again. Thank you. Um, I do appreciate it. I, you have opened me up to the Pacific Theater, and I'm really looking forward to getting there in the podcast very soon. Uh, give, give our listeners a chance where they can find some of your material at. Oh, Lucky 666 is our latest. And, you know, people people ask us that all the time, Ray. And I'm always like, hmm, do I favor Barnes & Noble? Do I favor Amazon? Do I favor? Of course, I always favor my local bookstore. But I'm go. pretty much at the point. I got a kid in college, so buy it anywhere you can. Right. <laughs> Please help this man out. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. It'll, it'll make a great St. Patrick's Day gift. There you go. Yes. And, and maybe in the future we can bring you back on to talk about your other book, Halsey's Typhoon. I think we touched mm-hmm. on it a little bit, but I'd really would right. like to talk. That would that would be a lot of fun. You know what Let's I do. find interesting? If you do, Ray, think about it. But come May, we could get back into that Battle of the Coral Sea. The first, I mean, especially now, the relevance with the drone warfare we have going on now. Right. It was unheard of for a sea battle for ships not to see each other. And uh, but. It's up to you. That's just an idea I'm throwing out there. That's a brilliant idea. I'll pencil in May, and I might might even learn how to work Skype by then. And, uh, <laughs> we'll get all this As work. might we. <laughs> so for, for everybody listening, uh, this this could have come out 10 minutes earlier if it wasn't for yours truly, not knowing how to work Skype. But anyway, gentlemen, thank you very much for being on, and I would be more than happy to have you back in May. We'll set that up, okay? Ray, it's always tall, fun, and informative to talk to you. Thank you very much. All right, y'all take care and have a good evening.